Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 64, The Myth of Motivation. As we talked about in episode 16, motivation sounds like a great idea on the surface. We hear a lot about motivation, and the basic idea behind it is that we have to be in a certain headspace or we won't have any desire to do what we need to do. The idea is that you have to be inspired or feel passionate about what you're doing. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it. Essentially, a lot of people wait and wait and wait for motivation to come along, figuring they can't do anything meaningful or worthwhile if they're not motivated. Now, it's a good thing the world doesn't work this way. Otherwise, we'd have a lot of unfinished buildings because the carpenters didn't feel inspired to build a house that morning. And there would be rotting food in restaurants because the chefs just didn't feel like cooking. And there would be judges blowing off their responsibilities because they just didn't feel anything positive when they looked at their docket. Imagine the chaos if Department of Motor Vehicles employees walked out of work because the work didn't make them feel excited. Or if doctors decided, no, we'll just, we'll just stay home and shoot around at golf because the idea of doing one more open heart surgery is just not stimulating today. See how ridiculous waiting for motivation becomes when you realize what it would mean if it really were why people got things done? This doesn't mean motivation doesn't exist, but it does mean that many of us think about it in a way that doesn't actually work. So the first thing is we put things out of order with motivation. We put motivation first. We think it goes motivation happens, then action happens. It's actually just the opposite. The result of taking action, that's what motivates us to do more of that action. We've all had the experience of making a New Year's resolution where I'm going to improve my life in the long run, but it's probably something that we're going to hate doing in the short run, like getting more exercise or sticking to a study schedule. And then we just don't do it because the thought of going to the gym or actually having to knuckle down and study, it's really unappealing. It doesn't sound fun. And we're playing Minecraft. We'd rather do more of that. But have you noticed that after you've actually gone to the gym, you usually feel motivated to go again? that getting a great score on a test or paper motivates you to do well on the next one? That's how action creates motivation and to continue doing the things you need to do. You feel good about having done the thing when it's over and you want that good feeling again. Now, Ruben Cottom, PhD, he says we do our best work at creating motivation through action when that action is tied to our values. So, if we have the value of getting good grades or of being physically fit or keeping our blood sugar under control. He calls this committed action. So we're gonna stick his article in the show notes as well. And according to Cottom, when you tie your action to what you think is important, you're more likely to actually do the thing the first time you need to do it before you're motivated to do it. And that sets off a cascade of action leading to further action leading to further action. How do we create that feeling of, I did great and now I want more of that? Persistence. So let's talk about that. Allison Green of the Ask a Boss column at nymag.com notes that when the persistence muscle has atrophied from lack of use, it's hard to get it going again. She suggests two methods to develop the persistence muscle. 
break things down so you can do things one step at a time and decide to do just 10 minutes of the task because once you do 10 minutes, you'll almost always find that you get into the rhythm of the task and it becomes easier. Let's talk about each of these things for a moment. So first, the breaking it down thing. You break it down and you reward yourself for each task you do. So we've already taught you in other episodes how to take a big goal and break it down into little pieces or the little tasks. But now the goal is to reward yourself for completing each of those little tasks. And it doesn't have to be a big reward. You could just say, I am awesome after you complete it. So for example, if I'm facing a stack of papers to grade, I might say, okay, after every five papers I finish grading, I'm going to say, I rock, or I am awesome, or wow, I really did well on that. And now I'm going to take a five-minute break and come back and do another five papers. Another idea is to create a punch card, like the kind they use at coffee shops, where after buying nine coffees, you get a tenth for free. A deal I am very, very familiar with. <laughs> punch off one marker after each completed short-term task and decide on some small reward you'll give yourself after the tenth one is punched off. For example, getting a coffee or spending half an hour on social media. Number two is the 10 minute rule. If you tell yourself you'll work on something for 10 minutes, it makes it feel a lot less oppressive. It also makes it a lot more likely that you'll get into the task and work for longer than 10 minutes. According to Allison Green, this is because the actual task is never as awful in reality as it was in your mind. Telling yourself just 10 minutes will often get you past the first hump of procrastination and resistance. Now, another method that works better than waiting around for motivation to strike, which is kind of like waiting for Godot, it never shows up, is using specific and challenging goals. Have you ever heard the phrase, nothing succeeds like success? That's the idea here. If you set a specific goal that seems just a little bit out of reach, just a little bit of a stretch, you're more likely to put in the effort and get that good feeling of achievement when you complete the goal. If it's too easy, it won't create that feeling of achievement. So set the bar high enough that you gotta stretch a little bit in order to get it. For example, a football coach might tell their team's offense that they want to score 50 or more points against their opponent, a really high point mark that is hard to reach. And that's for American football or gridiron football. A team might fall short of the 50 points but if they score 42, that's still a lot of points for their opponents to match or overcome. The idea is that this high point value is a goal for the offense to work toward and an achievement if it's reached. Or a defensive hockey coach might tell their team they want to allow no more than 10 goals against in the next four games or five games, and they don't want to allow any more than 25 shots on goal in any specific game. A basketball coach might tell a player they want to see 15 or more rebounds per game in a five-game span from that player. All of these are benchmarks that are both challenging and specific. There is a concrete mark that the players are striving to reach. 50 points scored, allowing no more than 10 goals against, no more than 25 shots on goal against, or getting 15 or more rebounds. Now, when it comes to studying, you might say, Normally, I can get through 10 pages of history in an hour. I want to try for 12 tonight. It may not be a huge stretch, but it still takes you out of your comfort zone, which is the goal. You might look at the upcoming math quiz and set a good enough goal of 84%. That's kind of like Denor saying, you know, they didn't hit 50 points, but they got to 42. But you also might set a stretch goal of 90%. Or you might say, 
I'm going to learn how to do that specific equation that's been doing dirt to me so that whenever I see it on a quiz or a test, I will know how to do it. I won't have to worry about it. Given these kinds of goals, these specific challenging goals, you're more likely to work towards them than just a vague goal of study history or pass the math quiz. When you set goals like this, when you make them specific and challenging, they really create the energy that you'll need to get that feeling of success. And then once you get that feeling of success, that's going to motivate you to go and get more of it. Yet another method to get yourself moving is recognizing your effort. You can do this by giving yourself compliments as we talked about earlier, but you can also set up a study group where each person talks about what kind of effort they made on a project, a paper, or studying for a test. Set up a supportive group where you can get feedback on the effort you're making to make sure it's not just busy work or spinning your wheels. Hearing from a peer, I think the way you set up your time so you can get done with math prep is really good and I'm going to use that may help you more than looking in the mirror and saying, you rock that math prep. And again, when you set up these groups, make sure the feedback you're getting is specific so you see exactly what you're doing that's producing the results you need. And finally, remember that when you're trying to improve, whether it's your jump shot or your math scores or your fitness level, it's going to be a process. Nothing valuable is one shot. Committing to doing the same thing over and over, which in athletics, you call that practice. It's what moves you from just okay to getting really good at this. Yes, deciding to persist is not as fun as feeling inspired, but it gets the job done while motivation leaves you sitting and playing Minecraft on your computer and not completing what you need to complete. Now, our experiences with this, um, my mom bought a lot of books on home organization when I was a kid, and one of them was called Sidetracked Home Executives, and the ladies who wrote this pitched themselves as reformed slobs. You know, they had been slobs, and then they figured out how to get out of slobbery and make themselves organized and neat and wonderful and tidy and all that. But I remember them reading about their ways of motivating themselves when they didn't want to do the chores, when they woke up with a case of the, I don't want to do it. They got for sale by owner, no appointment necessary signs to stick in their front lawns, which guaranteed people would stop by. And that created a lot of anxiety about, oh God, I don't want anybody to see the condition the kitchen's in. I don't want anybody to see my dirty laundry. Oh dear, the front room looks like a tornado hit it. I need to clean it up. Get the phone call that someone's coming over, instant motivation. So I've had to use several of those methods to get myself moving on days when I've woken up with the I don't want us and all I wanna do is play video games. But if I have a prep that I need to get done for a class or I've got a stack of papers to grade or a chapter revision to complete, sometimes I need to recall what it felt like the last time that I succeeded at that task and use that feeling to get myself moving even while I'm still having the case of the I don't want us. I've done the same thing by becoming part of an accountability group that really holds me accountable if I don't do what I said I was going to do. And here's a great trick. Go to your favorite social media. Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, wherever you normally post, and say, this is what I plan to get done today, and post that first thing in the morning. That's enormously motivating, because if you don't get it done, now you're going to feel like a loser. Who wants to feel that way in front of their friends, right? I did this the other day when I was like, I've got things that I've been putting off for three weeks. I'm going to post them to Facebook. So I went to Facebook and I said, I'm going to organize my bedroom cabinet. I'm going to do two loads of laundry, and I'm going to finish this chapter that I've been you know, faffing about and not doing. And at two o'clock, I had two messages from friends saying, well, 
are you getting it done? And I'm like, yeah, I got, I got the cabinet done already, you know, because then it forces you to be accountable to other people. And for a lot of people, that's really a great way to get some instant motivation. There are times I'm incredibly motivated in my work. I'm excited to write an idea that I have for an article or a book chapter, or I'm really excited about a lecture that I'm about to give. And I ride that motivation wave. But after a while, that initial excitement fades away for me. And at least in the case of writing, it fades before I'm fully happy with the finished product. But I don't want to submit something half-baked to an editor. That'd look really, really bad. So I have to change tracks from, I'm so excited and I can't wait to get these ideas out on paper, to, okay, the goal is to get this published. What steps do I have to take to get there? I think the toughest part for me is to remember to break things down into small steps. I have to make a conscious effort to list the steps and say, here's what I want to get done today, tomorrow, the next day, rather than trying to attack a full project at once. I work with colleagues and friends to help keep me accountable by telling them that I'll have something to review by a certain date. And while I might not have as complete a draft as I'd like by the time I send it to them, these appointments make me have to sit down and write something so that I'm not totally unprepared. I want to respect my friends and colleagues' time and their efforts. So for me, there can be various sources of motivation, and that can be excitement about the idea, pride, respect for others. But if I don't follow up on that wave with consistent work, then the emotional high of motivation was completely useless. For data work, or for editing this podcast, which tends to be simple and repetitive work more than anything, the 10 minute rule comes in really handy. It takes me about 10 to 15 minutes to get into the rhythm of what I'm doing, but once that rhythm is established, I can keep working. You know, you made me think of when you said, you know, when you reach the slog moment, and I always do. I mean, I've mentioned the beadwork projects that I do. It's sewing a lot of tiny little beads to a piece of cloth. And when it's first started, I'm excited because I can see how this is going to, to develop. I've got the first few rows of it done and I'm looking at it going, oh, this is so cool. And then I'm doing an 80 row project and I get to like row 35. And I begin to say, oh, I hate this. God, I hate this project. I hate this project. I'm so tired of this project. And there's a concept that I maybe want to put in here from Brene Brown. She says, you can't skip act two. Act two is the slog. Act two is when it's not fun. Act two of the story is when you are sitting there going, when is this going to be over? I am so bored or I am so stressed or I am so avoidant or whatever it is. But act two is when the project stops being fun. Now, the thing is, that's a U curve. It's really fun at the beginning. It's that initial wave of, oh, this is so fun. I get to get this idea out or, oh, this is so great. I'm doing this art project. And then you're in the middle. You're in the slough, the trough, and you're like, I hate this thing. Why did I ever do this? Why did I want to do this? And then you start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And for me, on an 80-row project, which is fairly big, it's like a 9-inch by 9-inch piece, and these beads, there's like 14 or 15 of them to every inch. Then I will get to about row 55, row 60, and suddenly it's like light at the end of the tunnel, and the motivation comes back. The issue is you've got to do that act two. You've got to do that rows 40 to 60, even though you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, you still have to do it. Now, students, our main suggestion here 
is create accountability groups for yourself. Make sure you promise your group mates you'll get something done because that really creates a great defense against the I don't want us. You don't want your group mates mad at you. Okay, so you want to make sure that you say, okay, this Saturday I will have this thing done. And if I don't, y'all can totally get on my case about it. Write down your goals and be specific about how you'll achieve them. Research shows that people who wrote out, here's what I'll do if this happens, were more likely to do the thing they wrote down than people who didn't write out what they would do. Have a plan. And teachers, encourage your students to create accountability groups and even think about giving them course credit for doing this. I encourage my students to create study groups and report back on what they've done during their study group meetings. And I give them course credit because I know this helps them with their learning process. You could do the same with accountability groups. Lead your students through writing specific, challenging goals that you know they're capable of achieving. Help them format the goals in achievable ways. Ask them questions about how they know they can get it done and don't accept answers like, I'll work hard. Ask them to get more specific about what working hard means. Yeah, and I, I want to speak to that for a minute. I had a student who really did not understand how learning worked at all. They were a student athlete. I know that's your bailiwick, Denor. And after a couple of weeks, I called them to my office and I said, look, uh, dude, there's a problem here. You're not understanding what we're doing. And they said, well, I'll just try harder. I said, what does try harder mean? And they're all, I don't know. I'll just try harder like I do on the court. And I said, okay, what does it mean when you try harder on the court? And they said, well, I'll, I'll practice my jump shot. I'll practice my midcourt shot. I'll practice passing. I'll pra okay, so I said, all right, so then how do you bring that here? Well, I'll just try harder. What does practice look like in this class? And because I was able to analogize working towards the test in my class as practice for the game in a sport, he eventually began to understand that just saying I'll try hard or I'll work hard doesn't mean anything if you don't name specifically what you're doing. So teachers, think about what your student is most interested in. Like if they're a video gamer and they come with you, you know, or they come to you and they come to you with I'll try harder, ask them what that means when they're playing their favorite video game. And they'll probably tell you, well, when I die, I just go back and do it again, and I keep trying to find the ways that I messed up. Okay, can you do that with this English paper? Okay, try to analogize that, writing the goals and figuring out what trying hard means and what working hard means so that they actually have a plan and that they can analogize to something they already do in their life. So that's what we have for you in episode 64. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com, and we'd really appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 65, when Adam and I talk about how limiting how much time you can spend on a task can actually make you more productive. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.